The Colorado Equals Security Podcast is your local source for regional security news, local events, and interviews with key individuals in the region. Now, here are your hosts, Rob Reck and Alex Wood. Welcome to Colorado Equal Security. This is the newscast for episode 110 for the week of March 25th, 2019. This is Rob Reck, the CISO at Ping Identity. And this is Misha Daniso, the CISO at IntelliSecure. Uh, Misha's filling in for Alex this week. Alex is uh, off gallivanting, enjoying spring break. Um, we are going to go ahead and jump into the news. Uh, but before we do, I have a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, we have a Slack channel. Uh, we're, we're well over 800 folks from the community who get together and talk about security in the Colorado uh, area. If you want to get together, there's lots of new channels created. Uh, you can create your own channel to talk about whatever it is you're interested in chatting. Uh, we'd love to have you join. The, the link to get on the Slack channel is on the front page of colorado-security.com. Uh, we also have a mailing list. While you're there, you can sign up to have the show notes for each week's uh, episode sent directly into your inbox. If I can figure out how to make it work this week, it'll be going. Usually Alex does that part. Uh, next, we ask if you, if you like the show, we'd love it if you'd rate us on your favorite podcast uh, subscription application. Uh, let us know if there's anything we can do better. And of course, we would love to get better. Uh, if you like the show, tell a friend, uh, let one of your friends know about it, a, co- a colleague, a coworker, uh, someone you meet on the street, whoever it is, let them know about the show. Hopefully we can get some new listeners out of that. So Rob, speaking of your favorite podcast subscription service, yeah. uh, my car comes with Stitcher and I can't get this podcast on Stitcher. So let's, can yeah. we figure out how to get that so, on Stitcher? So interesting, uh, Stitcher is one we looked at, Alex and I looked at that it actually, in order for them to run your stuff, they get they actually get the intellectual property for your podcast. Ooh, that doesn't yeah. Sound we were looking at that and, and you know, not like we do a lot with it, but it just seemed a little weird to us the way that that works. And it's all, it's all really monetized as well. Um, I think we actually would get paid uh, for doing through stitcher, but we, the whole thing seemed a little bit weird and, and, you know, as amateur, you know, spending 15 minutes a, a week trying to figure these things out, it's a little hard to, to go after that one. Well, fair enough. I think then I'm just going to have to figure out how to <laughs> hack the system in my car and then put in the uh, uh, Google podcasts. Maybe we'll look at it again though. Uh, finally, you know, if you really love the show and you want to help keep us going, we'd love it if you'd support us on Patreon. This is our, um, this is how basically, you know, you can help financially support what we do. All the money you give goes directly back to the community, either through the fees of things like hosting and, and bandwidth, and also uh, you know back out to swag for the community when when one can. Uh, none of this money goes to Alex's or or I's pocket. Well, all right, with that, let's go ahead and jump over into the news. Uh, the first story of the week is from Cowtown to Tech Town. Denver's startup scene is flourishing. Uh, I spent some time taking a look at this article. It's really fascinating. What I like about this article is it goes through and identifies the things that are unique to uh, Denver as a as a town that's attracting the kind of talent that hmm. we have here. And it's not just about the fact that, let's say, you know, rent is cheap and people are moving in from California, that sort of thing. It talks about really the the community and and the the way that it's a very collaborative community, and it, it focuses on four uh, companies within the Denver community that have started up here, and it's a really fascinating article and makes a great point about the uh, the environment that you get here within Denver. Yeah, I had never heard of any of the four companies that they focused on. Uh, they certainly have a diverse set of technologies that they focus on. Um, so there was, uh, is it Geospiza, which is a uh, 
a public safety company that looked like it was uh, basically helping people make decisions around public safety. Yeah, it's really fascinating. What they're doing is they're gathering lots of data from various different sources. So if there is a, a major incident within, an, uh, let's say like a natural disaster or something like that within a, a community, it will give them the, the, the first responders the ability to determine where their resources are most needed. Yeah, pretty cool. The, the next company they talked about was Vangst, uh, which is basically like a match.com, or I guess that's not right, probably an indeed.com for marijuana jobs. Yeah, so it's in the green industry without producing any of the green, which is amazing. So they, they're able to take advantage of all that growth um, without having to have any of the exposure, right? Pretty, right, pretty and good. I guess you know because they're a you know, regular non-marijuana business, they actually get to have legit accounting and bank accounts, which is amazing. Uh, there was, I'm not sure if I'm going to say this right. There's, is it Kineshu? Um, it looks like they do like a photo sharing app, um, but you know, allows you to create albums and another, you know, I, I don't know why we need another photo sharing app, but it, theirs is unique and it's growing. Well, what's unique about it is not just photo sharing. It's actually audio. So imagine that the, the story that they tell uh, within the article is about how you may have people within your family, you know, grandparents, great grandparents, they have stories to tell. And, you know, when they pass away, it's as if this whole section of your history goes with them and the library just closes down. So they give you the ability to get the stories out of them, put them online so they could be shared with generations to generations. Yeah, uh, that's awesome. And it does add something certainly unique to just yet another place to, to create a, a online photo album. Uh, the final company that they talked through was Repurpose Bowties. Uh, which I know you you read about a little bit. You want to explain what these guys are doing? So repurpose bow ties is also fascinating. What they end up doing is uh, they work, uh, they, they create uh, bow ties um, and, and other textiles uh, by repurposing uh, the textiles from army uniforms or military uniforms. So it, it's a great way of making people feel really good about the, the products that they're wearing. And what's really fascinating about it too is to me, they're also creating this uh, job uh, market within, and they're creating a, uh, an opportunity for people who, who work at home who just happen to have a sewing machine or know how to sew, yeah. and it gives them an opportunity to actually uh, get a living wage doing something they can do right out of their house uh, very easily. So it's kind of a, a gig economy for sewing from your house? It is, and apparently you know, some of their bow ties were actually featured, like people wore them at the right. Academy Awards. Right. That's pretty awesome. Good, yeah. It's good marketing, right? Uh, so the article also mentioned that um, there's been at least 22 tech firms that have either moved their headquarters or opened a field office in Colorado between July of 2017 and June of 2018. Um, we, we see about 23% growth in terms of tech talent in that time. Um, that's a, that's an adding about 19,000 new workers. So a lot of growth we've seen, and you know, it doesn't look like it's going to stop anytime soon. Absolutely. And it's, it's great for the town. It's great for the community. And uh, it's really great for the, uh, the culture that uh, we're developing here in Denver. Awesome. Uh, next story is that from Wallet Hub that Colorado is number five on the list of most innovative states. Do you see this one? I did see that one. It's a short article. It doesn't go into a whole lot of detail, but uh, it's definitely fascinating. I'd, yeah. I'd love to understand uh, where it was. What's, what's, it also shows what the top five are. And yeah. uh, I, I'm nice. Uh, I'm very pleased to know that I've lived in four of those places. Oh, really? <laughs> so, so number one was Massachusetts and then, then Washington and then District of Columbia, Maryland, and then Colorado until we, we, we beat California. The criteria they used here is... Um, the share of STEM professionals, projected STEM job demand by 2020, eighth grade math and science per performance. Which we were number one in, by the way. Number one, taking it at home. Uh, share of science and engineering graduates, age 25 plus. Share of technology companies, R&D spending per capita, and venture capital funding per capita. Uh, 
kind of coming in at the bottom of the list, number 51, because you remember we had District of Columbia as a part of this too, was Mississippi, uh, Louisiana, West Virginia, Iowa, and Tennessee there. I'm surprised about Iowa, considering, you know, they have some pretty good universities and Des Moines, a, um, Des Moines is a pretty good tech town as well. It is, but the, the state is certainly much bigger and a big agricultural state as well. Yeah. So, uh, Our next story is about a Bay Area firm, Checker, that could bring more than 1,400 jobs to Colorado with its HQ2. I had never heard of Checker. I had never heard of Checker either. Uh, I think they do background checks. Uh, yeah. speed and, up, they speed up background checks, yep. And uh, what's fascinating to me about it uh, is that they're still telling the story about how a lot of these you know, companies like Checker, one of the things that attracted them to Denver was the fact that the uh, the cost of living was, was much, much lower. The cost of housing was lower. It's not been my experience. <laughs> well, you didn't come from the Bay Area. That's true. If you move from San Francisco, it's still really cheap here. But there's at the same time this week, there was an article that I read about how people are actually moving out of the Denver area because of the cost of living. So Yeah, cost of living is going up. The Checker, uh, they're going to bring 1,472 uh, jobs. Um, the average wage for these jobs is $138,000. So that's, that's a pretty high pay for average. Yeah, Holy smokes. Uh, next, we talk about the economic impact of NREL. So the National Renewable Energy Lab, which is headquartered up in Boulder, has a pretty big economic impact. Uh, title here says more than $1 billion, which is pretty significant. Yeah. So it's $1 billion nationwide. But specifically, I was shocked to see this. They impact Colorado's economy at $748 million. That's a that's a pretty significant chunk of our economy. Yeah. The, the study says that they employed about 1700 uh, full-time and part-time employees and about 60% of those employees are involved in core research and development at, for NREL. Who yeah. says, who says that there is no, uh, no future in renewable energy. This is clearly showing us that's not the case. So lots of jobs coming in. Then we have a, a little bit of a, a sad story here with some jobs that are leaving, uh, Oppenheimer funds, which was just recently acquired by Invesco is going to cut 850 jobs from their, their office in Centennial. Uh, they, they had about a hundred. They have about a thousand people here now. So you know, you're talking about a, a massive cut across their organization here in town. Yeah, that'll be difficult, I think. But it, it would seem to me that there are within this economy nowadays the fact that we may be losing jobs in one sector. There are plenty of jobs available in other sectors, and and I would imagine this is not going to be too difficult a thing for people who are being affected by that cut to go out and find other opportunities here. In yeah, they'll find new jobs for sure. I know that. Uh, their security office is there in, in Centennial. I don't know if those folks are impacted or not. I, I only know good things about what they're doing there. I think the bigger impact here is this is a company that's been around for a very long time and probably a lot of people with, you know, decades of plus of tenure who, you know, might not be ready to find a new job. So right. it'll be a, no, it'll be a little bit of a challenge and hopefully they, they have the support they need to, to be effective there. From a security standpoint, I'm sure that uh, there are enough security companies here in town that are going to be salivating to get any of that security talent that comes out of Oppenheimer. Absolutely. Maybe I can, I, I don't know if those guys are, are losing their jobs or not. I'm, I don't want to assume they are, you know, they're, they're keeping 150 people there that very well could keep include the entire security team, but if they need help and you know, hopefully we can, we can help them out. Uh, next, there is a story about a cyber attacker demanding ransom from Colorado utility companies. Uh, this is one of the articles that I spent a great deal of time reading because I find it fascinating. And, and when I think about the ability of, of people to actually 
be resilient to hackers. One of the big issues for me that I see a, a lot, and I think it's borne out within this article, is the idea of, well, what resources do you have? If I'm a hacker and I'm looking to actually make money, I'm going to target people where I believe that they're not getting the resources that they need within cybersecurity, so they're going to be much easier targets for me. Right. And that makes sense, right? Your, your utility companies are probably at the top of that list. Uh, and these are not like, this is not like Excel, right? This is uh, the Fort Collins Loveland Water District and the South Fort Collins Sanitation District. So the, the, not the big, the big famous utility companies. Not, not only not the big famous utility companies, but nothing that you would you know put on the top of your mind for people who even live here in Colorado. Right. So um, this happened on the, the morning of February 11th. They came in and they were locked out. Uh, the... Uh, the group said that they never considered paying the ransom. Um, and they say that within about three weeks, they unlocked the data. The first thing, you know, they were selling this as like, Hey, we got it through. And I'm like three weeks without the data. Oh my gosh. How do you do business for three weeks without access to what I assume is, is mission critical data? Yeah, no, I think so. But what's fascinating is that it didn't affect all their data. There was, uh, it also didn't affect any privacy data, which I think is fascinating because a lot of their billing is actually done through a third party. Uh, so it was yeah. not affected and they didn't need to send out notification to their customers. Yeah. They, they specifically say that, you know, third parties do all their PCI or their payment type information. Um, you know, I thought there was a little bit of wiggle words on the, on the, you know, whether there was PII that was compromised here. They, they say, uh, we have, you know, uh, I'm reading it right now that we've looked three times and we don't believe that information was compromised. Uh, but to make absolutely sure that's the case, they're bringing in additional it support to look through things a fourth time. Um, so I, you know, I, like, like I said, word, I like the word a fourth time. Yeah. We really want to reiterate the fact that they've done their due diligence. Yeah. So anyway, uh, it, it sounds like these guys took the right approach. They're not, they're not just going to going to pay a ransom and, and, you know, yet be an, a victim again shortly thereafter, but it, it sounds very painful. And hopefully, you know, they get into a place where this doesn't happen to them again in the future. Yeah. I think that that's really the challenge. And I think this is a, the ongoing thing that we as uh, cybersecurity professionals are struggling with on a regular basis, which is how do we get the funding that we need when we know that the resources just simply aren't there. And it's a matter of making that case and understanding that risk and, and balancing uh, with the priorities of the organization. Unfortunately, it often takes events like this to open up people's mind and open up the, uh, the, the wallet within the budget cycle. Exactly. So Alex had added a, an article a week or so ago that, that I was, I was a little surprised about it and it was called, uh, chief privacy officers, the unicorns of K through 12 education. So when he added it, I had no idea why he did, cause it's, it's not from a, a Denver source. Um, but as I, I looked into it, it, it got relevant here. So, um, Last month, a, a nonprofit called the Center for Democracy and Technology published a report arguing why all these schools need to have a chief privacy officer specifically. Um, and then this article goes into saying that even though um, get their exact wording here, um, uh, shucks, the you know as they looked through all of the different districts across the country, they could not find a, sim a single example of a district anywhere that has a chief privacy officer. Um, so you know. There's this high recommendation to do it. There's no one actually doing it. They did come up with two examples of departments that have established leaders to be in charge of privacy. And uh, Denver actually is on that list too. Good to know. So we have, and Denver, Denver Public Schools um, appointed a new role called a student data privacy officer. Uh, and they filled it with a man named Brian Westerman. Um, and it's his job to make sure that uh, he's looking across all of the schools in their district and understanding how we're keeping uh, data's, uh, data for secure, students secure or private. I, I, think, I think nowadays also with uh, 
the the advent of GDPR and a lot of companies in the United States also looking at the various privacy laws and the potential for maybe a national privacy law, we're going to see a lot more pressure for organizations, just in general, schools, all kinds of organizations to have somebody who's within that role because it's critical and it's a lot of work. Yeah, it is a lot of work. There was also several regulations that are relevant to the schools with FERPA, COPPA, um, is it Colorado? I don't know what the CIPA is, but there's also Colorado's. <coughs> Excuse me, Colorado's new privacy law that's relevant. So these people have a lot of work to do. Uh, the other example of a district that had a privacy leader is actually in in Baltimore. So it's Denver and Baltimore as the two the two who are leading the way on this. All right. Uh, next story is, is from Coalfire. Uh, Coalfire Labs has developed an open source password cracking tool. Yeah, I read a little bit about this article, and uh, to be perfectly honest, uh, I wasn't sure that I fully understand what the what the biggest benefit you know of this is going yeah. to be. So, what was your take on that? Ron? Yeah. So, what what I got different than you know, there's other things out there uh, that that do similar stuff. What they did that is unique and I think probably worthwhile is they've actually created it as something really simple for you to spin up in AWS. So you don't have to have a rig on site, you know, and that is the hardest part about breaking hashes is you need a lot of CPU and having a rig that expensive, um, you know, just sitting there doing nothing most of the time is, is kind of a waste. So they made it really easy for you to spin up AWS instances with a lot of CPU on it and go after these things aggressively and then turn it right back off again. It's using um, Cognito, uh, Dynamic DB, and S3 as the components within AWS. Try to make it as easy as possible to stand it up and run it. Now, as an open source tool, though, is this going to you know make us more secure? Or is this going to make us less secure? Because it's also something that will be in the hands of people who are looking to you know, crack your hashes. Yeah, I, I always, anytime you come up with something like this, right? It, it, it's always the question, is it going to be used for, for bad or for good? I think the argument for folks who release this kind of thing would be that... Um, the bad guys are already doing this and the good guys are not. So trying to make it easy for so the good guys. something that we can actually use to defend about what the bad guys are doing. That but makes sense. I would be absolutely shocked if this doesn't get used by bad guys as well. Without a doubt. Uh, the, I guess, you know, bad guys maybe don't want to pay for AWS bills, I don't, but they'll probably spin it up in somebody else's account and use <laughs> and rack it up against them, right? So hard to say. Uh, next, uh, we have a, a press release from Ping Identity this week. Uh, we're Ping, we won a couple new awards. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, we, we won the, uh, our, our, our API security award where we will like monitor your APIs, detect your APIs and actually send up honeypot APIs. Uh, we won the, uh, the 2019 Devies award. That's Devies kind of like the Emmys, except for developers, um, for best innovation in security and networking. And we also won gold for the best API management and security product in the for the Information Security Product Guide Global Excellence Awards. I think in this in this market nowadays of a lot of development that's being done within the cybersecurity world, those winning those awards is really nothing to sneeze at. There's a lot of competition out there for people who are producing some pretty impressive uh, new tools. So uh, good on Ping Identity for uh, for staying on top of things. Uh, the next one here that. Uh, is another local company that won uh, an honor. ThreadX was recognized as a 2019 top 25 cybersecurity company. Um, I was diving into this and, and I, I couldn't figure out much about this list. I did finally get the list in front of me and there were companies I didn't know. So I'm not sure there wasn't criteria shown for how they got it. Um, but you know, obviously we love to see the local companies recognized and, um, even though I don't know much about the list, it's not the cybersecurity 500 that you know Route 9B has was you know notoriously on the top of for a number of years, but uh, something that's that's new and uh, of course love to see these guys 
um, get recognized for doing something good. Yeah, ThreadX is a good company. They make a good product, and it's great to see the uh, the recognition getting out there. Uh, next, we have a, a blog from Logarithm around exploring legitimate interest within the GDPR. So the GDPR is a is an interesting beast, and anyone who's doing business in, in the the e, uh, the EU, uh, you know, has to understand how this impacts how they do business. Is this something you guys have had to think about much? This is something we have to think about all the time. So, uh, one of the things about legitimate interest, it seems for a lot of people, like, oh, this is the easy way out. This is how I can actually tell people that, hey, we have a legitimate interest. That's what we're going to claim, and that's going to be the reason for this processing because you don't have to gather consent. Uh, marketing people love the idea of legitimate interest. However, to actually really claim legitimate interest and not get yourself in trouble, you have to do a legitimate interest assessment, which will then go through and identify whether or not you can actually claim legitimate interest. And a lot of people aren't doing that. They're just writing down legitimate interest is what we want to do. And I think this is, as I was saying before, GDPR and managing, uh, dealing with privacy and all the work that goes into privacy, you really have a lot of work to do. And this is one of those things that I think people are skipping. Yeah. So I think they do a good job in this in this logarithm blog talking about, you know, how to think about legitimate interest. And and, you know, for those of you who don't even know what it is, it's probably worth a read. There's quite a bit of detail in there. Um, and, and as we are going to have a lot of court cases to help show us exactly what's required, I think this will be defined better and better over the next couple of years. Yes. Thank, thank God for the for the Googles and the Facebooks of the world who are showing us how difficult this is going to be for us smaller guys right. eventually. Yeah. Uh, last uh, news story of the week is actually a blog from IntelliSecure um, about evaluating penetration testing companies. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people don't realize that penetration testing is one of those things that IntelliSecure does. Uh, we actually have a uh, pretty significant part of our business is uh, is penetration, penetration testing, vulnerability assessments, application testing. Uh, we do a lot of that, and uh, we do it actually very, very well. It really came uh, out of... Uh, our organization in the United Kingdom. Um, so a few years back, we acquired a company called Pentura and, and integrated them into what we do. And I think that when you, the, the whole purpose of the blog is really to help people when they're looking at penetration testing and evaluating you know, what they're gonna get out of a penetration company when they bring them on, to really objectively go through and identify the things that they really need. Make sure you're getting the right fit. The uh, understanding what it is you're testing, understanding what you want to do with the results, understanding providing the right kind of information to the company and making sure the company can meet your requirements is absolutely key to having a successful penetration test program. Well, and there's some good details in there worth, worth reading through. All right, uh, that takes us to the end of the news. We'll go ahead and do our Slack message of the week. Big thank you to Andre Gaeta. Andre is the uh, the one who sponsors this on his own. We appreciate all your help, Andre. He's the also the regional sales leader for Mimecast. So, you know, a little, little sales pitch for those guys that he, that, you know, he's been a great supporter of the community. Maybe you guys can support him and them. Um, this week we are going to recognize Jen Wilson for her post in, I can't remember, I think recommendations are random, uh, where she was talking about, uh, basically she started a conversation around doing assessments as a part of recruiting. And, you know, her perspective on it was, you know, frustrating as a recruiter to have these, you know, gating assessments to get into the process. But I think it turned into a really interesting conversation around the relative merits of assessments versus interviews and, and, you know, job like work, you know, during the, during the interview process and, and how, you know, how reliable we think these things are versus how reliable they actually are turned into one of my favorite conversations of the week. So I wanted to recognize Jen for that. I probably, that's a subject that I appreciate very much because I think assessments can be, in, if, if done properly, it can be very important. I think interviews are very important. The least effective thing that I can think of that helps me with, uh, with hiring somebody is a resume. 
<laughs> yeah, it's funny. The resume is basically saying, did they even put in the the bare minimum amount of work to be considered, right? right. And did they put a couple buzzwords in so we can we can talk to them? Uh, yeah. Anyway, good stuff. With that, uh, Jen, you will get uh, the opportunity to to pick something from the Colorado Equal Security Swag Store. Uh, interestingly enough, we have I actually just this week got a few new pieces of swag because. Alex added so many new things. I got a I got a zip up hoodie, uh, which I'm a pretty big fan of, and I got a new hat, uh, a trucker's hat. But I don't have either of them with me right now. I'd or love to truck. show them to you. Or I so they, we actually have these like these big magnets that you can put on the side of your car. I haven't had the guts yet to buy and apply one of those to my car, but but you know hopefully sometime soon I will. All right, go ahead and we'll jump over to events now. Um, uh, we, we, you know, we've been starting the events section talking about keynotes for RMISC each week. So we are on the third keynote, which is the closing keynote of the of Wednesday. Um, and I wish Alex was here to talk about this one because we are actually doing a live version of Colorado Equal Security as a keynote at RMISC this year. I like that. That's that's great. Yeah. I think everybody will be uh, pleased to see that, and it'll be fun for everybody who's really tied to the uh, to the podcast. So we haven't figured out exactly like how do you do a live version of you know, the, the news and events and jobs, but we're going to do it. And, and the, we're going to have a featured guest as a part of that, who we'll be interviewing, who is the CISO for the state of Colorado, Debbie Blythe. Um, Debbie's been on the show a, a few years ago, but you know, we're going to have that live keynote interview with her basically talking about what has she learned over the last four plus years as a, I guess maybe even five years now as a, the CISO for our state. So looking forward to that. Oh, that'd be great. Um, let's go ahead and jump into the news over the next two weeks. On the 26th, SecureSet is doing their women's only beginner's intro to capture the flag. So if you're a lady who has been interested in getting involved here, maybe you want a smaller group or you, you know, you'd love to just work with some other women, this is going to be a chance for you. Uh, on the Also on the 26th, we're going to have the GDPR meetup, GDPR privacy. Uh, it's the March in-person gathering. On the 27th, ISC Squared Pikes Peak down in the Springs is doing their March chapter meeting. Uh, on the uh, 28th, the ISSA uh, COS 6 annual ISSA COS Cyber Focus Day. It'll yeah, be. so that, that's the Colorado Springs. It's one of their big events of the year. Uh, it is a full day event, lots of CPEs and you know, some good quality content uh, if, you guys want to, if you guys are in that area. On the 29th, we have Office Hours with Davis, Graham, and Stubbs. And this is a law firm that was happy to answer your questions. So anything you want to talk about in terms of you know your small business or your tech company, they're, they're there for you. There's nothing quite like free time with a lawyer. Uh, on the April 1st, we have the NCC meet and greet. On the 2nd, SecureSet has Hacking 101, an intro to Wi-Fi. On the uh, 4th, uh, we have the ISSA Denver Happy Hour. That's going to be at Automox. That's up in Boulder. Um, on the 4th through 6th, there is the Lady Coders Conference. So we talked with Elaine Marino uh, and Karen Worsell are both a part of this group, um, getting together in uh, in Denver and, and really help helping you know get women more into tech and, and coding specifically. On the 5th of April, we have in Colorado Springs, the Cybersecurity First Friday event. And finally, last event here is uh, ISSA Colorado Springs is doing their security plus training exam prep. Uh, they, they actually do, I think it's three of these in a row. Um, the first one is on the sixth. Uh, and, and this is a really good opportunity for anyone who wants to get this more formal training. I've sent numerous folks from my various teams down over the years, even though it's a drive to the Springs, it's practically free. I think it's something like, like 20 bucks per session. Um, and you get the, you know, the breadth of the content for the security plus with, a. a really good instructor, a good group of people who you're going to get to work and learn with. So highly recommend those who want to get that education. Sounds like a great opportunity. 
All right, we'll go ahead and jump over to jobs. This week, uh, I do have one job at Ping to, to talk about. We have a junior product security engineer. Uh, this is someone who's gonna help us secure the SDLC for some of our products, our, our SaaS products specifically. I uh, would love to hear from you if you're a developer who wants to move doing into doing more security stuff or a recent graduate with a CS degree. Uh, it's not posted yet, but we're also hiring a, uh, a lead product security engineer. Uh, this is a team lead for that same team actually. And that would be here in Denver and obviously someone with more experience who's, who's looking to do security uh, for our product development. At Pensco, they have an uh, opening for a senior information security program manager. Uh, the Colorado Judicial Branch is hiring a manager of information security. So if you want to keep the court cases safe, that's for you. Uh, Rick Hurley is looking for a senior security compliance analyst. Transamerica is hiring an international information systems security analyst focused on policies and standards. It's a long title. And very specific. Uh, Healthgrades is looking for a security analyst. Proofpoint is hiring a senior security engineer. Coalfire is looking for a cloud architect. The University of Colorado, Colorado Springs uh, is hiring a instructor focused on, on cybersecurity. And then finally, Swimlane is looking for a marketing coordinator. And we had one ad here, uh, IntelliSecure is hiring a security platform engineer. What is that person going to do? So a security platform engineer is going to have an opportunity to really help uh, work with the, uh, the platform in our various DLP, CASB, SIM uh, products and help onboard uh, clients and make sure that clients are uh, getting the services that they need in the way that they need them, making sure the configurations are all set up so that the managed security services teams can do their jobs properly. Awesome. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. What uh, what kind of experience do you want them to have in the background to, to apply for this? Um, well, to, to be a platform engineer, you have to have a, a fairly uh, extensive uh, amount of experience in uh, uh, networking is, is important. Uh, understanding, um, really understanding, I would say, uh, DLP can be incredibly helpful and understanding how uh, those programs work specifically around technologies such as uh, Symantec, technologies as Forcepoint, uh, on the SIM side, technologies such as Logrhythm. And uh, I think this uh, is a great opportunity for people who are really looking to expand uh, their experience as well and, uh, and really develop and help build and grow uh, that program. Awesome. Well, Misha, that's it for the news this week. Uh, we do have our feature interview. I sat down with Rock Lambros. Uh, Rock, we've We've talked with Rock in the in the past. Uh, he he was running security for Marquest Energy in town. He just uh, a little bit ago actually left there and just started his own company doing consulting. That's right. Um, actually, spoke to Rock right after uh, he left Marquest and started uh, doing his consulting. And at the very at the beginning, he was uh, telling me about all the things that he wanted to do. And I think I spoke to him about two weeks later. And I feel like he can't keep up with all the work that's yeah. coming his way. He's doing a great job and is highly in demand. Yeah, good stuff. All right, well, that's it. Thanks thanks for stepping in for Alex this week. I appreciate it. My pleasure. And we'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Hi, this is Chad Payne, Executive Director of IT Operations for Cranky Sports and Entertainment. Welcome to Colorado Equals Security for Colorado security professionals like Colorado security professionals. Welcome to Colorado Equals Security. This is a, a special interview coming to you from San Francisco. Uh, I'm sitting in the Intercontinental Hotel with Rock Lambros. Rock uh, RSA is officially started, I think. Uh, not the not the main track, and the expo hall is not open yet. But we're here on on Monday, and uh, we thought this would be a good time for us to talk about Colorado security while we're surrounded by the whole security world. So you know, you have uh, you've done a lot of different stuff in security, and we're going to get to talk through that. But before we go into security, I would like to understand how did you put together your own AR-15? How does that happen? <laughs> how how does that happen? 
uh, with a lot of cursing, um, a lot of broken parts that I had to rebuy because uh, I don't know how many of your listeners are, are into that sort of thing. Um, there are very small parts uh, that go into, especially the lower receiver of an AR-15, and I have very fat, pudgy fingers. And those two things don't necessarily always go together. So lost springs, um, snap springs. How, uh, how many parts are we talking about in putting this thing together? In all, I don't know, 75, 100-ish by the time it's, okay. it's set and done with both the lower and upper receivers and, the, and your grip and the buffer and the buffer stock and, and all that kind of stuff, right? So, so why, why put it together yourself? I assume you could just buy one and it doesn't cost any more to be put together. Or Absolutely. I, I wanted to learn. I wanted, okay. to, I wanted to, to learn about it, learn about the components, yeah. um, be able to kind of tweak things if I wanted to, if I wanted to replace a barrel because uh, I, don't know, I decided to make it more of a long range rifle than a short range rifle I could yeah. as opposed to buying an entire upper receiver. Although it's probably almost as cost effective to do that anymore. But um, that sort of thing. It was really more for an education experience for me. Huh. So I'm guessing that's not your, your only or first gun. Any, any favorite uh, gun? You said you're a gun guy. What's your favorite yeah. gun? So I am partial to my AR-15. The one, the one <laughs> you created? I, that I built. Have you um, named it? Does it have a name? No, I have not named, <laughs> I have not named that one. That um, one, all right. No, I do have a, I do have a uh, Benelli shotgun, and, and it's uh, Benelli's an Italian gun company, yeah. so her name is Isabella. Isabella, <laughs> all right. So I think my wife came up with that one. Um, but, you know, the, the, my favorite gun I've ever shot is probably a friend of mine has, I mean, believe it or not, an old Russian Moisen Nagant that was built during World War II. Um, and, you know, you can buy them now for just like a couple hundred bucks. Usually um, they're surplus, right? Hmm. And it was just, it was just interesting, right? Because it was an older gun. What kind of, what kind of gun is that? Uh, it's, a it's essentially a sniper rifle that yeah. the Russians use, uh, fires a seven. Uh, 16 millimeter round, so the kind of the same round that the AK-47 uses, hmm. which is also a Russian gun. It's just something they don't see a lot. Um, and then also, I have fired a uh, semi-automatic shotgun before, hmm. um, which is interesting, right? So semi-automatic shotgun. You know, when I think of a shotgun, I'm thinking about something that you have to what, what do you call it? Pump action Pump or, action, or yeah, cock effectively, sure. right, between each round. Yeah. So imagine like an AR-15 where you're just pulling the trigger and rounds yeah, yeah. come out, but with a shotgun, with a 12-gauge shotgun, and, right? So there's an amount of kick and a certain amount of uh, yeah. liberating power that, that, that you feel after, you know, you, you watch that target, like, go to shreds, right? <laughs> like, it's just... Cool. All right, well, that's, that's, it's always fun to get to hear a little bit about what you enjoy doing, and, and that's neat. Uh, do you go to... Do you go like to Cherry Creek Reservoir to shoot, or where do you? Where do you so go I'm there? a member of Centennial Gun Club. Okay, that's uh, over on Arapahoe, right? Yeah, that's on Arapahoe, kind of down by the uh, by the airport. So, yeah, almost by Centennial Airport. Yeah. yeah, cool, awesome. All right, well, let's go ahead and dive into uh, the more traditional stuff. Where are you from? Where are you born? So I was actually born in Aurora, okay. Colorado, uh, but my family left when I was two, and I grew up pretty much in Ohio and Vegas, mostly in Vegas after my sixth grade year, I think. So you went to, you went to Ohio from 
age two to sixth grade. Yeah. And then to Vegas after that. And then to Vegas after that. Moving for your parents' work or what? Yeah. Yeah. So my dad was uh, kind of a chef slash restaurateur growing up. Um, so him and my uncle, my mom's brother, had a, a bar and restaurant in Ohio. And, you know, it supported us well, but it really it got to the point. It was downtown Canton, Ohio. So Canton's where the Pro Football Hall of Fame is for yeah. people who, who can kind of pinpoint that. Uh, but, you know, small town. So it didn't really support both families. So my dad's family was in Las Vegas. Much more opportunity. So packed us up, shipped us to Vegas. Talk about culture shock. You know, going from small town, Midwestern Ohio to uh, Las Vegas. Yeah, I bet. Right? And that was back in the late 80s. Uh, so I've seen, you know, the whole Vegas boom and kind of go through several transformations of family-oriented to adult playground to family-oriented to now the just ridiculous adult playground it is today, right? Yeah. So, so did your dad do a restaurant in Vegas as well? He, no, so he never, oh, he did open his own restaurant, uh, I'm sorry, once. It was more like a, a kitchen inside of a bar, right? So he kind of okay. paid rent to the bar, but owned and ran the kitchen part of it. Interesting. Um, but he primarily just bounced around between various restaurants and hotels at that point. Okay. So basically, you know, from sixth grade on living in Vegas, uh, that's gotta be a, a little bit unique to, to be exposed to all that stuff. Yes and no. I mean, growing up, I mean, really the only difference would have been that you could walk into a grocery store and there's a slot machine or video poker, mm-hmm. but all in all, it was at least when I was growing up, most of it was contained to the Strip and to mm. downtown. And downtown was even before the whole, what the Fremont experience is now with the canopy and all right. that. So it was very much smaller and people really didn't go downtown a whole lot. So it was really contained to the Strip. Yeah. So we lived obviously off the Strip. No, not everybody lives in hotels in Las Vegas. Um, there are houses off of the Strip. Yeah. Uh, we lived about 20 minutes away from the Strip. Um, so all in all, it was normal, right? Yeah. I mean. But I did go from like, I mean, even more of a culture shock was a private school in Ohio to public school in Las Vegas, right? So junior high, high school, uh, grew up, you know, I played football, was just kind of of a normal kid. Yeah. So played football in in school. When did did you get into technology? Was that in school? Was that in college or after you got out or what? So I always wanted to be... uh, either like an aeronautical or aerospace engineer growing hmm. up, right? Designing uh, planes, effectively. I was a, a kind of a, after Top Gun, I was, I knew I couldn't fly because I had glasses. So hmm. I was like, I want to build those. And then, so I got into technology really in earnest in high school like, with my first programming class. And then I got to college. <laughs> Where'd you go to college? My freshman year, I went to Arizona State University. Yeah. Got to college, I was an aeronautical engineering major, and just kind of realized that, you know, between the party scene at Arizona State, quite frankly, and 7 a.m. physics and calculus classes didn't really mesh. Mm. So, kind of burned out there, went back to to Vegas, and ended up with a degree in uh, what is CIS now, or information systems now. I think it was a management information. So where do you end up going to school in Vegas? UNLV. UNLV. University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Running Rebels? The Running Rebels. Yeah. And um, so, you know, got my degree there uh, and got into IT, which was fortunate. I mean, just kind of, you know, looking back from a timing perspective, when I graduated college, uh, Bill Clinton was in office and there were significant cutbacks to the uh, defense industry. Hmm. And... 
you know, the I, and it was during the dot-com boom, right? So, you know, having that IT degree kind of launched my career, whereas if I did get that aerospace or aeronautical engineering degree, time, I, I would have had a very tough time getting a job out of college. So what was your first job? My first job, so let me think about this. My first internship, I would say, was with a company called Purchase Pro, hmm. and they did essentially B2B uh, uh, help purchasing agents in the hotels, right? Connect with their customers, right? So it's kind of like one of the first B2B platforms hmm. and it was awesome. You know, right. They would ship a bunch of these CDs to the, to the customers they would install and kind of, you know, nothing that you would think of today. Yeah. And what do you do uh, for them? They ended up, so I, I did a QA, software quality assurance yeah. for them. And then, but really my first job in earnest was at the Las Vegas Valley water district hmm. as a Oracle developer. Uh, so I got my start really uh, as an Oracle developer slash DBA. That's great. And that was still in Vegas. That was uh, still in Vegas. Fast forward me. What you did that for? How long were you there at at Water? And, and I think at the Water District I was there a couple of years, and then I went on to I wanted to take advantage of the dot com boom, so I went on to a startup in Vegas called uh, Tririga, Tririga, and at the time they were essentially creating plugins for AutoCAD type of programs. Um, to do geospatial, it was essentially uh, a project management program that plugged into AutoCAD along with kind of some geospatial things that you could do within yeah. uh, your projects, right? Uh, they ended up getting acquired after I left by IBM. Hmm. Uh, and now they do, I think, more like property management, construction management type of, type of okay. stuff in their software. I haven't really kept up a whole yeah. lot. And then after, so after Tririga, uh, that's when I moved to Phoenix. Took a job there with another startup called Copper Key. And I would say that they were, this was in the early 2000s, I would say that they were one of the first, almost ahead of their time, kind of data analytics and marketing firms, right? So their, their goal was to take all the data from the credit bureaus effect, effectively um, and create very targeted marketing lists for small to medium-sized businesses, okay, right? and you know that kind of had some legs, but I, I, you know, I ended up leaving a couple of years later. They were still going on, and I think they, they exited to another company and essentially rolled in with them. I don't, mm. I don't know how that exit went. And then from there, I did a few kind of contract engagements. So that's in, at, at Tririga is real, when I really started getting into information security. Hmm. Um, Nine Eleven hit. I remember that day. Uh, very vividly, uh, got to the office and it was pretty much a waste of day at the office. We were just watching the news right. all day, but I kind of, one of the, the few bright moments of my life was, uh, had this kind of epiphany, if you will, that, hey, the next battle space, right? All these companies are going out of business. The next battle space is going to be the internet, right? Or mm -hmm. what everybody calls cyber today. So, um, so how do I get into you know, this security space. Um, you know, I did have an inclination of like, should I join the military? Should I do this, should I do that? And was it really feasible for me at the time? So how do I kind of give back in that regard? So I pivoted from being an Oracle DBA, to focusing more on database security. And then from there at the start of company at Copper Key is when I kind of built their 
I was a security program. It was a very small company, but that's where I started putting security policies in place and started what would, you would consider a security program today or the foundations for it. Yeah. And it just kind of grew from there. Then I went on And were to, you like an IT guy for them who did, also did security? Or? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Right? So I was kind of like an IT manager, their only DBA and yeah. uh, security. Gotcha. So, and then from there, I bounced around a couple of contract engagements uh, for... Honeywell and for Wells Fargo mm. uh, on their security teams that built out the SOC for Honeywell. It was on one of the, the original teams that built out Honeywell Security Operations Center, their global security operations center. Uh-huh. Literally my first day there, um, the, I mean, the, the room was still being drywalled, mm. right? So it was, that was an interesting experience. Um, and then I landed at eBay. Okay. Did you move out to the Bay Area for that? No, I was... Uh, actually, they were expanding into Phoenix, okay. and that was their first official Phoenix hire. Hmm. Uh, you know, other people had transferred from the Bay to Phoenix, right? But I was the first official Phoenix hire, and that's where I learned how to do things from a security perspective very rapidly and at scale. Hmm. And you know, I kind of credit eBay, a the people I met at eBay, people I've worked with at eBay people I've kept in touch with at eBay and the experience at eBay with kind of giving me that, you know, kind of accelerated foundation, if yeah. you will, right? Like really learning baptism by fire uh, to be able to do some of the other things I've done uh, to this day. So, so what year experience. did you join eBay? I joined eBay in, it was 2005, 2006. Okay. They were still... Pretty big at that point. The, yeah, yeah, so it was their 10th year. I joined like just shy of their 10-year anniversary. Okay. And uh, how, how many folks were doing security for them at that point? So security was broken up between the operations teams and then an InfoSec team, which you would consider more of kind of GRC today. Okay. Um, which team were you on? I was on the operations team. So okay. doing network security, so firewalls, IDS, IPS, yeah. all the packets, right? Yeah. We were responsible for all the packets. And... Uh, so that's why I mean very rapidly in that scale because even back then I think the calculation was something like ten thousand dollars a minute um, yeah. if people couldn't log into the site bid on a product sell a product right yeah so so I was, I'm wondering what kind of scale the team was because you know that's oh, pretty early for yeah. a security team to be very big but that was a pretty big company it, we were what? so I think the operations team when I came on board. Man, you know I don't have a good memory. I think the operations team when I came on board was like five or six people. Okay. And we had expanded to probably 11 or 12 by the time I left, okay. about six, six and a half years later. Yeah. Um, it's pretty, you know, pretty small for the size company you're talking yeah, about, yeah. Absolutely. And we and at one time, so at one time our team, because again, it was a very hot market back then, our team had actually shrunk down to about four or five people and we were responsible for the eBay site, eBay IT, and PayPal, hmm. right? And needless to say, those on-call rotations were pretty interesting. Pretty right? rough, yeah. And the rotations were pretty frequent. Yeah. Right? I mean, we were pretty much on-call all the time. And, but, you know, put, quite frankly, put hair on my chest from a professional perspective, right? And fortunately, I had a couple of very good managers, good mentors that kind of stepped us through all that, led us through all that, uh, while we were able to kind of staff back up. So how long did you did you stay at eBay? I was there for six and a half years. That's a pretty good run. Yeah. And then during that time, uh, I got my MBA, circle of life back at Arizona State. Hmm. 
um, and had an opportunity to move out to Colorado to run a security operations center for DHS, hmm. Department of Homeland Security, um, through General Dynamics IT. So if, for those of you who aren't aware, the federal government outsources everything, pretty much. So we were running the Security Operations Center for uh, the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services out of Westminster. Hmm. So I ran that for a while. We were kind of an integrated uh, SOC and NOC. So I was the SNOC manager yeah. for, uh, for uh, about two and a half years. Um, and then that contract uh, was coming to an end and they were moving it to Stennis, Mississippi. So there's a, the NASA, yeah, the NASA Space Center there uh, effectively you know, there are politics involved that we won't get into, but there are politics and, you know, they kind of got cheap space, yeah. if you will. Um, you know, so Stennis is only about 45 minutes out of New Orleans. So, I mean, you hear Stennis, Mississippi, it's like, well, crap, are you going to get talent? There's actually a decent talent pool down there, but it's still hard. Yeah. Right, from what I understand, keeping in touch with some people. So... So you were the, you moved to Denver in the 2011-ish time frame, yeah, is that exactly, right? Yeah, exactly, 2011. And then you you did that, you said two and a half years running that? Yeah, about two and a half years. So 2013, you, were, you weren't going to move to Mississippi, I assume. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So no, not not no, but hell no. No yeah. offense to Mississippians or or uh, New Orleans-ites yeah. on the cha- uh, listening, but uh, just wasn't for me. We love Denver. So then I uh, went to Agilent Technologies. Mm-hmm for about 14 months. It was a pretty short run there. Is that uh, the same Agilent that is like the, the phone systems and so forth, is that right? No, uh, so Agilent Technologies is actually the original, original Hewlett Packard. Uh, so device measurement systems. Okay. Um, and then Agilent actually split off into, so like when HP bought Compaq, right, they split and the original HP went off to Agilent and then HP became the compute servers, right. all that printers, all that. And then Agilent then split uh, into different two different companies. So, so the chemical measurement and analysis stuff stayed Agilent. Okay. And the electronic measurement stuff became Keysight Technologies. Hmm. And Keysight has since actually bought Ixia. So hmm. Ixia is now uh, a yeah. Keysight company. Ixia, we, we might recognize because they are a security vendor, they'll, exactly. be, they'll be on the floor at RSA and yeah, so forth. Absolutely, and you and you will see an Ixia Keysight Technologies company. Okay. Um, so, anyways, I left before that split. I left like in the middle of that split. So okay. I was running more incident management for okay. them. Uh, then I got the opportunity to um, build the security program at Marcos Energy Partners. So I was their first uh, security manager hired. CISO role. You don't really get titles in the oil and gas space. Um, had a person of one on my team who I inherited from the network team, but he was really doing their firewalls yeah. and IPS, IBS, just type, type of stuff, and was able to grow that team and the program substantially, both on the IT side and on the operational technology side. So when you came into Mark West, how big was the company at that point? The company was, I couldn't tell you employee-wise, but uh, revenue perspective, probably just shy of $2 billion with about a, Eleven to a billion dollar market cap. Yeah, and your headquarters downtown Denver. Headquarters downtown Denver um, in, the, in the black building across the street from the Optiv building. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and and you got to build that program for how long? 
So I was there four and a half years. Yeah. So we were acquired by Marathon Petroleum about halfway through my tenure there. And, you know, I've lived through uh, the integration, right? Supported the team through the integration, led the team through the integration. Um, so it's actually interesting because having been at eBay, I was on the M side a lot of M&As, right? On the, yeah. on the acquirer side a lot, but not on the acquiree side. So it, gave, it definitely gave me a different perspective. Yeah. And, um, you know, going through gap analysis between us and Marathon standards. And, you know, we were, uh, you know, Marcos has been around 12 or 14 years and um, relatively, I mean, large in the midstream oil and gas space, but not really a large company overall in that, in that space, in the oil and gas space. And the Marathon, Fortune 25, Fortune 30 behemoth, right? It's right. been around 100 plus years, right? Our security programs were vastly different uh, on the maturity levels. Right. We did some things better. They did a lot of things better than us, right? They were just quite frankly more mature, had yeah. more resources. So going kind of through that gap analysis and starting to meld things together was, was very interesting. So I had had the urge for a little while to, like an entrepreneurial itch for a little while. Mm -hmm. And really it was about this time last year, at RSA last year, where I got a lot of encouragement from people as I was talking about it, like thinking about it, to like rock, just do it, right? Um, there's plenty of businesses going around effectively, right? The, the, the space isn't as saturated as you think, especially for people like you who wouldn't be targeting the Fortune 100, right? right? The Fortune 500s. Um, so over the past year, really, um, I kind of started building that people I reached out to me so, to do so you, you said entrepreneurial instinct but but to do what? what what kind of entrepreneur did you want to be so really to go off on my own and try try consulting long yeah. story short um, uh, and just kind of be the master of my own domain so marathon was you know obviously as part of M&A's go taking away more and more of my responsibilities my responsibilities were shrinking um, they had then they acquired another large oil company called Endeavor um, so there were going to be some synergies going on there. I kind of saw what the writing on that wall was going to be. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, and the thought of actually doing another job search was nauseating to me. <laughs> I mean, I was just, I was, you know, quite frankly, just burned out. Um, it's like, am I going to, I mean, it, it's not that I was miserable at Mark West slash Marathon, MPLX, or, you know, whatever you want to yeah. call it. Many, the, the, the many names of the company. Um, but... Um, you know, so I was, I was okay there. So it's like, you know, am I going to trade one corporate problem for another corporate problem right. at this stage of my career? Because um, I've been doing it almost 20 years by now, right? Yeah. And I'm like, you know, maybe I'm, I may have some good knowledge to impart, right? I started this career with hair. Right now I have no hair, right? And, and the, the hair I have left is going gray, and I like to attribute that to some wisdom and experience. And... Um, you know, I'm not the guy who's going to go in and, and bang on a keyboard anymore. It's been a while since I've been that in the weeds. But, you know, I think I could help a lot of struggling companies out there build their programs, you know, define their security uh, program roadmap, help them implement the roadmaps. If there is a technology need, I could bring in people to do so. Yeah. Um, and that's worked out pretty well so far. So in October, really the end of September, beginning of October, I uh, started Rock Cyber full time. 
And, and what kind of services are you mostly offering? Do you, and you just kind of summarized, you know, helping people, but do you, do you go to market with a, hey, I want to be a virtual CISO for you, or is it, is it engagement-based, risk assessment? Like, talk to me about the kind of things you do. Yeah, so the, you know, how it started so far is pretty much engagement-based, so yeah. traditional risk assessments. Um, you know, my, my, my pitch, if you will, is, and we've all heard it before, but it's, I'm, I'm really so much against being the department of no, right? Uh, it's, you know, if the business isn't operating, we don't have jobs, right? It, I, I can't put it any more bluntly than that. Um, and outside of certain, if there are certain regulatory requirements where you absolutely can't do something, and even then we can have a conversation of, do you pay the fine or, or the investment or, or put in the investment? Um, you know, there are, there are, we are mature enough as a security industry right now to be able to come up with creative solutions to do, to do just about anything to support the business. And, you know, I still run into a lot of people with that mindset who are, nope, can't do that, nope, can't do that, nope, can't do that, and then wonder why uh, IT teams, product teams, business teams go around them, hmm. right? So, really, I, you know, my picture's been, you know, let's do an assessment, let's align your program to the business. And what I've really been finding is people just want... At least, the, you know, the, the, the customers, the clients that I've had so far, it's like, hey, we, just, we need a baseline traditional risk assessment, right? And we don't have a framework that we have to go model after, so, okay, I'll model them after the NIST cybersecurity framework. Or, you know, I've got one engagement potentially coming up where it's like, you know, we have an ISO 27001 certification, we have to do our interim internal uh, annual audit. Can you help us with that, right? Can you help us make sure we're adhering to controls and evaluate our security program in the process? Um, or, um, you know, hey, we had a breach a while ago. That seems to be cleaned up. Uh, can, can you help us reevaluate our security program, uh, make sure that we're aligning properly? Yeah. Right? Those types of things. And, and then, you know, as there's never been a risk assessment on the planet that hasn't had results, right? Risks. Yeah. So I help them define a security roadmap to start addressing those risks, prior, I prioritize those risks as part of the assessment. Yeah and then help them to find a security roadmap to address those risks. And then it's really up to the organization. I mean, I, I, I help them kind of through the thought process, which is really up to the organization if and how much they're gonna invest in any and all of those initiatives, right? right? And then I'm available, right? If they want uh, help moving forward to manage those projects, to implement those projects, whatever, yeah. we're, we're available. Awesome. So what's your, you know, what's the long-term look like? Is it, you know, you you've only been doing it for mm -hmm. you know, what four five months whatever it is yeah. right now. Uh, what is you know what's your plan 2019 2020? Any thoughts about how this might change? Yeah, so I've I've been thinking a lot about that. That's kind of one thing that I've been I won't say struggling with, but it's been going bouncing around in my head a lot. Um, you know, because in, in one regard, I have zero interest in being like the next Optiv, right? Right, <laughs> that that's not the path I want to go down. Uh, or build out something to be that big. But, you know, I wouldn't mind having a few consultants under my belt, right? And, and to do that, I've got to be able to, especially in this market, uh, have them be kind of full-time employees versus 1099 subcontractors because it's a, hard enough to recruit in this market without being able to provide benefits and, and all yeah. that kind of stuff. But to do that, kind of need a critical mass for, for revenue, yeah. right? So right now I'm the chief everything officer, right. right? On the service delivery side and on the 
business development. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm not a sales guy by, by, by nature, right? So business development for me is fortunately been very blessed. I've had a great network and all my work so far has come through referrals. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that, how does that sustain and scale? Let's right. see. So, so 2019, I've told, I've told several of my friends that a year from now, ideally, I'd be out of the service delivery side to, to mostly an extent and be running mm. quote unquote a company, you know, few consultants under me and maybe a salesperson, maybe outsource sales, we'll see. And, and just, you know, kind of building some steam there. Yeah. Uh, I've got, I'm, again, I'm very blessed where I'm gonna be very busy the next few months from a project perspective. Um, and we'll see where that goes. Yeah. Uh, no, I, you know, we, we've talked in the past. My, yeah. my struggle was always that, you know, I, I'd spend cycles getting the business and then go deliver. And then it, after delivering, I would always be like, okay, now what? Like it, it was, I hated this, uh, this context switching between trying to be the, the sales guy. And it's, sales doesn't necessarily mean yeah. like, uh, going out and smiling and lying to people, right? It, 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 it could just mean like talking about what their needs are. And may or may it. not be happening here at RSA this week. <laughs> writing up an SOW and like yeah. um, all those things are just, they're just work, right? Yeah. Uh, and then you go deliver and, and I, I was, I found that context switching really difficult. And I think it, being able to get some specialization yeah. makes it a little easier. And of course, like smooths out the, the bumpiness of the business. Cause you're going to have, like you said, you got a bunch of work the next few months. Uh, if you spend the next few months delivering work and, and all of a sudden you just, you finished all those deals, you're like, okay, well, well now what? I got, exactly. you got nothing in the pipeline because exactly. you haven't been talking to people because you've been working, right? It's a, it's a tough balance. It's, a, it's, a, it's almost like a chicken and the egg scenario, right? Because if you're busy delivering, you're not bringing in the pipeline. Right. But if you don't have the pipeline, then you're not going to be busy delivering, yeah. right? And it is. And I find that I've, I've had to get really good and disciplined about organizing myself, um, especially working from home. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know, there are a lot of distractions. Right. Uh, I love my wife, right? And you know, we, we figured out that did you, you just know, call your wife a distraction? No, no, no. <laughs> I say, but I've we have figured but out that's gonna that. be the headline in this oh, story. I know, this week. I know. I, I, <laughs> Mary, I love you. Okay, so but you know, we've gotten to the point now where it's like, okay, because I'm home, I'm not available, right? And I'll, yeah. I'm able to carve off some time and you know, being able to manage my time. And I find that I have to like book everything in my calendar, even if it's, hey, do admin work or do write this proposal. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, for two hours and then, you know, three hours work on this project and two hours work on that project. Yeah. Right? And hour and a half do, you know, the rest of the stuff that Rock has to do in his life, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and really, so I've been, I've been, practicing that right? yeah and it's worked out pretty well that's great so taking a little bit of a turn you know, i didn't I, I didn't meet you through those jobs i met you in the security community and, yeah you know, you've been fairly actively involved in a number of different things in the in the colorado security community um i'm, I'm trying to I, I don't off the top of my head remember exactly like where we met i know you know somewhere through issa through somewhere, ISSA somewhere and i know you you stepped up to be the chair for the Rocky Mountain Information Security Conference for mm-hmm. I think two years. For two right? years, yeah. Um, how did you get plugged into the community in the first place? So when I moved here, so I was an ISSC member in Phoenix. Yeah. And so when I moved here, I reached out to Alex, yeah. who was the president at the time, 
Well, actually, I reached out to communications, I think, at ISSA.com, yeah. and he replied. Yeah. Because Alex was doing kind of everything at the time. Mm-hmm. And he put me into the, the community, meetings, that yeah. sort of thing. So I just started coming to meetings and and uh, meetups and happy hours and, and, and stuff like that. I'm not. I, I'm definitely not the most involved person, right, I'm, you know, uh, or anything like that, but just kind of organically just meeting people and, and kind of building those relationships. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it was really through ISSA, Alex, you, you know, and, and meeting other individuals in the, in the community. Then, you know, got roped in, <laughs> roped in to do RMISC. Alex decided that, you know, he needed to take a little bit of a break. So yeah. uh, convinced me to do it for what ended up being a couple years. Um, then we flipped. Back, I'm helping out with RMIC. I took a I took a year off last year because I needed to for various reasons, um, and now I'm back helping with RMIC this year, running their their marketing. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, in earnest now after RSA, right? Because nobody has really wanted to to focus on RMIC with R with RSA lingering over their heads. Uh, we'll be doing some active marketing, LinkedIn. Facebook, yeah. that sort of stuff, to start uh, bringing in people, not only in Colorado, but reaching out to to other states, especially in the region. So for anyone who's listening who maybe had never been to RMISC, you know, they, they maybe heard it on the show, maybe they never heard of it at all, uh, what would you be your, your pitch for why someone might want to come? Awesome um, speakers and trainings, very affordable price, and very community-focused. Right, so it is not, I mean, obviously we have our sponsors and we love our sponsors, but it is not going to be, uh, in my opinion, blasted in your face like you would here at, at RSA. Mm-hmm. Um, it is very much community focused. It is built by the community for the community. Um, and, and we're fortunate in the fact that we've got a great team that we outsource all of the logistics to, uh, you know, dealing with the conference centers, um, shout out to iPlanet, uh, dealing with the conference centers, the logistics of, of, you know, getting the speakers here and that sort of thing. And we, as an organizing committee, can really focus on content and how we're going to drive value to the yeah. to the community and to the members. Yeah. It, those of you listening, just to echo what Rock said, the the conversation that's continually happening with the committee is how do we get more value? How do we get deliver more value to the attendees? Mm-hmm. Um, that's the whole reason we're all there is get as much value as we can and and you you, you very infrequently see us increase prices like it's basically got to be a pretty darn good reason to do it um, we'd much rather figure out some other way let the sponsors cover that yeah, cover yeah. The, cover and, the and it wouldn't and it truly i'm not here to bash vendors or bash sponsors it truly wouldn't be possible without them yeah. but you know we put some guardrails up to make sure that it's not you know strictly a vendor show uh, I think there, there's absolutely value out of having the, the vendor floor there and having people kind of see what new products are in the, mm-hmm. in the marketplace and, and um, or, you know, not new products in the marketplace, but what are they doing now, right? Yeah. What are some of the new features and, and learning about that? But you'll see most of the programming, most of the sessions um, are not vendor focused at all, right? There's a vendor track, so when you go, you know it's going to be a vendor speech. But other than that, you know, the, the sessions are vendor agnostic, yeah. right? So you, you can truly learn about trends, uh, you know, TTPs, right? Technique, tactics, and, and uh, processes, right, in the industry. And, and uh, 
without it being kind of a, a sales thing flung right. in your face. All right, so I think the question everyone wants me to ask is, why is your name Rock? Why is my name Rock? You know what, that's a great question. So my real name is Kyriakos, a uh, very, very Greek name. Yeah. My parents were born and raised in Greece. Um, somehow, kids in high school got Rock out of it. Right, long, really long story short. Yeah. Uh, I would so say... So it wasn't until high school, huh? Yeah, it wasn't until high school. And I'd say well, really... What you go by in music Kyriakos? Kyriakos. People, yeah. you know, would, would uh, call me Kyriakos. Teachers would take them a little while to figure it out at the beginning of every school right. year, right? And But they, they would get it. And it's actually pronounced almost pretty much exactly how it's spelled. Pretty phonetically, yeah. And, you know, but I've gotten all sorts of Caracas, Kyriakos, right? All sorts of different pronunciations. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, somehow I would say it was later, probably my senior year where it kind of really started sticking more. And then when I went to college, when I went to ASU, forget it. It was like, they're like, here, here, I'm just rock. Right. So yeah. that's, that's really my freshman year of college. I would say is really, you, you made the choice stuck. at that. Point. I made the choice at that yeah. point that it's just rock. So, um, and yeah. it's just stuck, right? Uh, it's just stuck. I wish I had have trademarked the name, right? I probably, as much as I love you guys in the community, I probably would not be sitting here right now if I had. <laughs> you're, you're thinking that Dwayne Johnson. I am thinking of Dwayne Johnson. I'm yeah. thinking that WWE may have wanted to buy that name off of That's me, funny. buy the trademark off. So, of me. does your wife call you Rock? Uh, both, both, and it's not okay. even uh, when she's angry, right? <laughs> right? She'll, she'll call me both. Awesome. Well, I, that's all those topics I wanted to make sure we covered. Is there anything that you wanted me to make sure I asked? We, any topics you wanted to go through other than that? No, not really. I appreciate the, the opportunity. I know it's busy uh, for you here at RSA because um, you, you do have to put your CISO of a security company hat on and do your, do your thing here. Right? So I, I appreciate the time. Um, you know, I just, you know, I, I love being able to engage in the Denver community and in the Colorado community and hopefully give back a little bit. and. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I also want to thank the community again. I cannot emphasize it enough now that I've gone off on my own. Like I said earlier, um, I've been blessed with a great network and all my business so far has been, you know, referral based. Yeah. So thank you. Anyone hearing, you know who you are yeah. or anyone listening, I should say, you know who you are. Um, and, and I can never, never repay you with enough gratitude for awesome. that. So. Well, great. So if anyone wants to reach out to you to talk about uh, ha ha talk about risk assessments or other work, how should they reach out? Yeah, obviously I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find me Rock Lambros or just rock at rockcyber.com. Cool. All right, buddy. Thanks for your time. Thank we'll, you, uh, Rob. We'll talk to you soon. And all you listeners, we'll see you again next week. Learn more about the Colorado security scene at colorado-security.com, where you can see information about local security groups, a calendar of upcoming security events, and learn more about Colorado equals security. Reach out to Alex and Rob by emailing info at colorado-security.com. Until next time, remember, Colorado equals security.